just wanted to uh, briefly make a comment on the, uh, the third verse of Rescue the Perishing. In the church I grew up in as a kid, we always did verses 1, 2, and 4. So I wasn't as familiar with number 3. And uh, with regards to the uh, feelings lie buried that grace can restore, I think it's important for us to remember that we can't sort of go in and out of being saved. And I'm not entirely sure where Fanny Crosby would have been coming from with that. But just want to remind you that there are people who, uh, as it says in another hymn, our hearts are prone to wander and, and we need God to bring us back. And so there's certainly times in our lives when we're not following God the way that we should as Christians. And so that's a good reminder that we can be admonishing one another and pleading with one another to, to come back and to follow God as we ought. Now this morning... We talked about being alert and sober since the day of the Lord is coming. And at the end of that passage, we were told to comfort and to build each other up. So when we are encouraged to build each other up, there's at least two common reasons why we don't want to do that. I can't do it, or I don't know how. And so this morning, as we look at our passage, I want us to think about what are some answers that we see from these verses that would help us solve those problems of, I can't do it, or I don't know how. There's a lot of similarities between those objections and the problems I ran into when I had to fix my porch in Allen Park. Uh, the end of it was starting to bow out a little bit because the fill dirt in the, the box that they build was just sort of pushing on it over the years. And I knew that if I didn't do something about it, eventually it was going to be a much bigger job. So I called around. I thought, how hard can that be? It's just some courses of brick, and I got some quotes. They kind of shocked me, so I said, you know what? I'm going to get in the middle of this and, and see if I can figure it out as I go along. Was that a good idea? Um, I was less confident when all the bricks were out. My neighbor comes over, and she says, hey, do you know what you're doing? And uh, at that point, saying, oh, yeah, I've watched some YouTube videos doesn't seem like quite enough to, uh, to cut it. That being said, um, I kept at it, and I realized that as I kept at it and thought about the things that I had looked up about how to do it, that I could do it, and that I did know how, at least after a few you know, mishaps and then straighten it out and so forth. So was it hard work? Yes. Getting the old bricks out, cleaning the mortar off all the old bricks with the chisel, because I couldn't find any bricks that matched anywhere in the area without driving two or three hours. That was hard work. Putting them back in, that was hard work. Remembering why you're supposed to wear gloves when you're working with cement, that was hard work. It was painful. You'd hit your knuckles on a brick, or you'd have those burn marks on your hand where the cement touched it. So it was hard work, and there were parts of it that were painful. But was it worth doing? The answer is yes. For financial reasons, for aesthetic reasons, for the satisfaction of a job well done, for my wife not feeling like she was going to fall off the porch when she came out onto it. So when it comes to building each other up in the church, do you say, I can't, or I don't know how? Paul gives us some reasons and some help. And if you are building each other up in the church already, hopefully you'll be encouraged to keep doing it, to do it more. And if you're not, hopefully this will be practical help for you. So if you're not in Ephesians 4, uh, turn there, and we'll start in verse 25. So Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he lays out all these uh, amazing doctrines about the faith in chapters 1 through 3. And then he gets to chapter 4, and he says, 
Now do these things. And what are the things that he says to do? Uh, verses 1 to 16, he says that God has equipped the church and he wants us to grow up in Christ. And then in verses 17 through 24, he says, Walk worthy by putting off the old way of life and putting on the new way of life. And now here in verses 25 to 32, he gets into some specific examples of things that we should stop doing and things that we should start doing. And we'll get to the building up idea, particularly in verse 29, but we'll start in verse 25. Just a few quick points before we look at the first idea in verse 25. We are to change, according to this passage, I believe our thoughts and our desires, not just our actions, our habits. Secondly, we have to replace the thing that we're doing that's wrong with something that's good. The way God has made us, it's really hard, if not impossible, for us to just say, I'm going to stop doing this unless I replace it with something that I'm supposed to start doing. And then, and perhaps most importantly, we can't do this on our own. We need God's Spirit to give us help, to give us strength to accomplish these tasks. So it's not, I'm turning over a new leaf. Sometimes you'll talk to people and be like, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just bettering myself, I'm turning over a new leaf. It's not self-improvement through discipline. Ben Franklin had this booklet, and he wrote out, here's the character quality I'm going to work on for these two weeks. The problem is, when you're doing that in your own strength, you, maybe you're doing good in that one area for these two weeks, and all the other things are starting to slide. Because we can't maintain that on our own, in our own help. And, finally, we can't pick and choose what sounds good. We have to go with what God has told us. So with those things in mind, we need to see first, put off falsehood and put on speaking truth. Verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members one of each other. First of all, lay it aside. Uh, summertime, you get outside, you do work, you are covered in dirt and sweat, like from the work day yesterday. You don't want to wear that all the time, right? Hopefully. You want to lay it aside. You take it off. You get rid of it. That's what Paul's saying here. Lay it aside. Falsehood is like that sweaty shirt, the, those grubby shorts that you've been wearing around. Take it off. Put it aside. Put on the clean clothes of following Christ. Uh, get rid of all kinds of falsehood. There's a number of reasons to do this. Uh, first of all, it characterizes Satan. John 8, 44, Jesus uh, goes after the Pharisees. He says, you are behaving as though you are of your father, the devil, because he was a liar from the beginning. And so if we practice lying, if we practice falsehood of various kinds, we're not pleasing God. We're acting like Satan. Furthermore, a pattern of lying brings judgment and shows that we may not belong to God. Revelation 21 and 22 both say that outside God's presence are the ones who love and practice lying. There's many ways to be dishonest. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, because more than this falls into judgment. You shouldn't have to say, when you're talking with people, I swear this is true, or I'm not lying to you, and then your statement. That shouldn't be the reputation that you have with people. We should be honest. We shouldn't make promises that we plan to break. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, I'll do that, and then something else comes up that we would rather do more, and we say, well... And then we'll call up the person and say, oh, I, I, I can't do this. And, and we make excuses instead of being in the pattern of keeping our word. Now, I understand that circumstances come up. And sometimes you can't do the things that you said that you would do. But if that's always your pattern, then that's a problem. And when we do that, we need to turn away from it. Don't say one thing in front of people and another thing to other people behind them when they're not there. 
That's another part of being dishonest. He says, instead, speak truth. He says, everyone, each one of you, speak truth. It's not okay, uh, like we looked at this morning, to claim a sinful activity as some kind of disease. Well, I'm just a habitual liar. It's not a, an aspect of your character that you can't change, like being a certain height or having a certain color hair or some of those sorts of things. Well, maybe that one you can change. But um, it's not one of those core parts of who you are. It's something that you choose to do that can become a part of your character if you do it often enough, but it is something by God's help that we can change. Furthermore, it says, with his neighbor. Who's your neighbor? In context here, I think it's saying our neighbor is other believers, but obviously Jesus talks about the definition of neighbor as being also the people around us in the world. And so do we speak truth not just with people at church, but also people in the world outside? And then he gives a reason. Why should you stop lying and start speaking truth? Because we're family. Look at the last phrase. We're members of one another. It's like we're parts of the body. You don't, your finger shouldn't be attacking your face. Your ear shouldn't be attacking your knee. I mean, it just, the parts of your body don't fight against each other that way. They work together. If we lie to each other, then we are like a body that's falling apart. It's not, it's not working the, together the way that's supposed to. Stop lying. Put on speaking the truth. Secondly, put off unrighteous anger and put on dealing with problems the right way. Look at verse 26 and 27. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. First of all, don't sin in anger. This is a quote from Psalm 4. And I think that Paul quotes this here, and he wants us to think about it, because it is possible to be angry without sinning. How do we know this? Well, Jesus, in John 2, is at the temple, and he's angry with the people who are defiling the temple by cheating people and setting up business inside the temple. Jesus is rightfully angry toward them and takes action toward them. Furthermore, in Mark 3... He asked the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or bad on the Sabbath? And they acted like they didn't know. And Jesus was angry because their lack of a response showed their unbelief. And then finally, God the Father in Romans 1 has wrath against sin. So when is anger okay? Anger is okay when it is against sin, like Jesus in the two examples that I gave. When it is controlled, what we tend to like to do is sort of get so worked up that we sort of explode outward in anger. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was stirred because he saw the problem, and then he acted to solve the problem. He didn't just start yelling and screaming, and, and, and then that was it, and it didn't actually accomplish anything. And when it's used to deal with the problem, which I think gets to the second half of the verse, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That doesn't mean it's, you know... 745, you know the sun's going to set at 746. You're like, quick, i got to go get, stop being angry. I think the point of this is, if you don't deal with anger right away, a lot of times that energy, that frustration will turn into bitterness. Instead of exploding outward, we sort of put it inside ourselves and we store it up and we take it out and we look at it and we turn toward a person and every time we see that person, we're like, this is the thing that I have against you, and we're, we're angry at them. We don't explode, but we still have the anger, and we're not dealing with it. And so the exploding is wrong, and the, the storing it up inside us is wrong. 
And so what does he say? Use it to deal with the problem. And so that's why God gives us, to a certain extent, these responses to things. They reveal to us wrong thinking, wrong desires, wrong actions. Or they reveal to us that we're having this response to wrong thinking, actions, desires of someone else. We're supposed to use that to deal with the problem, not just to uh, use it selfishly. And then, don't give the devil an opportunity. You say, well, what does that mean? I think he's saying don't take revenge. Why do I say that? Think about what God says to Cain in Genesis 4. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Deal with it or it's going to enslave you. And I think that that's the idea here. You give the devil an opportunity when you let your anger sit there and it sort of proceeds down this path from, from I'm a little bit frustrated to I'm really angry to I wish that person were dead. And so Jesus, that's why Jesus said, if you hate your brother, if you're angry with your brother without cause, it's as though you're willing to murder him because that's a few steps down the line. And so we should take this seriously. So don't take revenge. And there's sort of a, an ungodly satisfaction sometimes. Maybe you read a book or something and, and the main character goes on this spree of revenge and, and, and at the end you say, well... He just sort of got back at everybody who ever heard him. I ask you this question. What does he do next? And in the process of carrying out his idea of revenge, doesn't he become just like the people that he is taking revenge against? And even more importantly, is any justice actually accomplished? And that's why revenge is God's business. If I go after someone... God is going to punish me too. Because revenge is God's business, it's not mine. And so that's again something that, you know, we have to think about. If someone has done us wrong, there are, in certain cases, right avenues, right paths to take. There are sometimes laws that have been broken. We follow those right procedures to seek justice. But if I say I'm going to go outside of those laws, I'm going to seek my own revenge then we're taking God's job, and that's not going to go well. Put off lying, put on speaking truth, put off wrong anger, and put on using it to solve problems. Thirdly, put off stealing and put on giving. Look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. So what's he saying first of all? Quit stealing. Stealing is more than just an act. It's an also an attitude of, of taking. What can I get? What can I get from other people. It takes a variety of forms, everything from shoplifting to manipulating people to being dishonest about things we're doing at work. There are many ways of stealing. And again, just like with lying, it's not a disease. There is no such thing as kleptomania. It is a sinful choice. That again, if I make that sinful choice enough, it's going to become such a part of my normal way of life that it seems like it's just who I am. But God says, put that off. Quit stealing. Why? We'll get to that in just a second. But in light of the second half of this verse, stinginess, I think, is a step on the path to stealing. Why do I say that? Because just as hatred of a brother, the end result of that is murder, an unwillingness to give of yourself leads to seeing what all you can get from everyone else around you. And why is that important? 
Because I think the Bible calls us to give of our time, our money, of who we are to serve God. And so that's why it says in the second half, He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so he will have something to share with one who has need. Why should we work? Because God made us to work. Work happened in the Garden of Eden before sin ever came into the world. God put Adam in the garden to keep it and to tend to it and to take care of it. That's in chapter 2. When does sin come into the world? Chapter 3. So work comes before the fall. It's part of what God calls us to do. We should also work, as we've seen in Thessalonians, because the lazy person who expects others to support him is foolish and is wicked. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 said, Lead a quiet life, mind your business, work with your hands. And so Paul is saying that is what's supposed to characterize us, not being lazy and idle and, and looking for other people to take care of us, but that we would work hard, support ourselves, have a good reputation with those outside. Why? So that we can, as the last part of the verse says, share with one who has need. And there is a, a, a profound truth here in the sense that work for a lot of people, I work so I have money so I can buy stuff that I want. And there's an extent to which that is not automatically sinful. There are things that we need. We need clothing. We need food. We need shelter. There are needs that we have. But if we're so driven by a love for the things of this world that our work is seen merely as a way to accumulate more and more stuff, then we're missing the point of what it says in the last phrase of the verse that we would share with one who has need. And there's a beautiful picture in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where he says that God blesses this person over here and gives this person a trial so that person can help him. And then maybe down the road, another person over here is blessed and this person over here has difficulty and that person helps them. It's not supposed to be some sort of Christian socialism. Everyone has the exact same amount of stuff. But it is supposed to be something where in the church we are watching out for each other so that as needs come up, we're able to meet those needs so that as it says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, no one is lacking. Everyone has their basic needs met. And again, there are situations in our world today where there are expenses that are massive and difficult that were not the same as they were in Bible times. Things with health care and all of those sorts of things. And so I don't think this rules out taking advantage of things that you are able to use in our society that our, that our government and our our uh, local or national provides. I don't think that that's automatically wrong to take advantage of those things. But if we say as people in the church we have no responsibility toward each other in that regard, then I think we fall in the category of James 2. Hey, you got a need? Well, I hope you are warmed and filled. I'll pray for you. Sometimes we just need to come alongside someone and meet that need, whether that be through the church at large or ourselves individually. Stop stealing. Start giving. And then number four, put off rotten speech and put on right speech. And this is where I want to focus more of our time here for a few minutes. It says in verse 29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Or to put it another way, stop talking sinfully. The word that's used here is used uh, in other places outside the Bible to describe rotten fruit. So if you come up to someone and, and you talk to them, and it's also used this way in Matthew 7, if you speak to others and, and your conversation with them 
gives them the sense it's like standing where there's a bunch of fruit rotting, that sickly, sweet, gross smell of fruit just rotting. That's how the Bible describes speech that doesn't honor God and doesn't help other people around us. Or, perhaps a parallel image that's more vivid in my mind, we uh, had a bird get in yesterday, and we came in the auditorium during the workday, and we thought, something smells funny. So we're walking all around trying to figure out where it is. If every time you walked up to someone, there, you, the words that you speak were like the smell of a dead thing, and I'm not saying because you didn't brush your teeth, I'm saying because the content of the words that you're speaking, the manner of the words that you're speaking, is just so repulsive and contrary to what God wants, how in that in any way is helpful to them? How can that help them? Paul develops this idea a little bit further in chapter 5. Let me just point it out to you real quick. Chapter 5, verse 3. What are the things, the content, the, the subjects that we shouldn't be talking about? Immorality, impurity, or greed? So, speaking of immorality, like we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 recently, we're supposed to flee immorality. So if we're supposed to flee immorality, then immorality should not be the subject of our conversation. Or impurity, again, things that are inappropriate, things that we shouldn't speak of, or greed. Our, our speech should not be full of, here's the things that I want and I'm going to get. And because, again, that goes back to the previous verse, where we're consumed by what we can take instead of by what we can give. So there's a wrong way of, the wrong subject of speaking, there's also a wrong way of speaking. And if verse 4 of Ephesians 5 says, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. Uh, the first one, filthiness, uh, obscenity. The sorts of things that you hear maybe an unsaved neighbor yell when they break something or wreck something or something falls apart. We're not supposed to talk that way. The next verse is literally silly talk. It's literally moral logos, speaking like a moron, speaking like a fool. Foolish words. We shouldn't talk the way that fools talk. And then the last one is coarse jesting. And uh, this one is the one that seems to give commentators the most problems because in some places, and this is the only place it's used in the New Testament, in some places outside the Bible it's used in a positive sense, Paul's clearly used it in a negative sense, so why? What's, what's it mean? And the best sense, as far as I can tell, is essentially that this is a sort of mocking humor where instead of you know, joking with each other in fun, you pick your words to tear people down and to attack them and just be mean in the way that you joke with them and, and express humor and cleverness and wit. We're not supposed to talk this way. We're not supposed to talk about certain things. We're not supposed to talk in certain ways. Instead, we are supposed to speak to build others up. Look, at the middle part of verse 29, only such a word as is good for edification. I think, first of all, we could say that this means we need to speak sparsely. It doesn't mean we should never talk means we should think before we talk. Why? Proverbs 10.19 says, In the multitude of words there is sin. James 3.6, it says, The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, and it sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And so, 
The words that we speak can be powerfully destructive, and so we need to think before we speak them. God wants our words to edify. Romans 14, 19 says this, Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, Paul describes the church as God's building. Building up other people was one of the goals of Paul's ministry. He talks about this several times in 2 Corinthians. Ephesians 4.12 says it's the job of pastors to equip the saints to build up the body of Christ. And Ephesians 2.21 summarizes it well. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And as it says in 4.14-16, we are not to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So we are supposed to be, in the way that we speak, accomplishing this goal that God has called the church to do, which is to be built up, edified, matured, brought together in Christ, characterized by love. So think before we speak. Speak sometimes less, but also speak thoughtfully. It says, according to the need of the moment. What does the person you're talking to need to hear? 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, it's the wrong reference, but in Thessalonians it says that there is a person who is stubborn. So the person who's stubborn, what do they need to hear? Stop it. It's like you're coming up to them and you're saying, quit it. What about the person who is fearful? Do they need you to come up and shout at them and say, stop it? No. They need you to come up and encourage them. What about the person who's battling some kind of sin? What do they need? Sometimes if they're stubbornly doing it, they need you to tell them stop it. But a lot of times they need somebody to come alongside and say, you're struggling with this sin. God says you shouldn't be doing this. Here's how he's helped me against this battle of sin. And so you help them. And what should our response be to everyone? Be patient with everyone. And so speak according to the need of the moment. It's not wrong to talk about hobbies or food or events of the week when we gather. But there's a sense in which we can talk about all those things with pretty much anybody that we meet during the week. And so does the content of our speech when we gather at different points, is it have things that help us grow more in Christ in what we're talking about and in the way that we talk? Is it things that are about God, things that are helping each other to maturity? And it doesn't have to be a fake sort of way. It's possible for us to sort of uh, mimic spirituality by stringing a lot of Christian phrases together. But... When we get together with each other, what things are you saying that will use a spiritual gift that God has given you to help someone be better 
in their relationship with Christ because you talked to them today? Or to ask it a different way, when you walk into church, how are you looking to minister to someone else who's around you, particularly in the context of this passage, in what you say? Something we should think about. And again, it doesn't have to be that the only thing we ever talk about is quoting verses or those sorts of things. But on the other hand, it shouldn't be that that's never anything that we talk about. Think before we speak. Speak thoughtfully according to the need of the moment. And as it says in verse 30, remember God is listening. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Why do I say remember God is listening? Because it comes right after the verse where it says, here's how you're supposed to talk. So what is he saying? Don't grieve God's spirit with what? By the things that you say. Why is this significant? Ecclesiastes 5 puts it very well. It says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Or to put it another way, if God is listening, would we say everything that we say? Our words are to serve God and not merely ourselves. And so whether that is, as it says in Ecclesiastes, making foolish promises, or whether that's just saying a whole bunch of things that we shouldn't say, we need to make sure that our words are used for God to support this task of building up the church. Again, there's nothing wrong with enjoying one another's company, telling an appropriate joke, not an inappropriate one in light of what it says in 5, 3, and 4, but at the same time, our words are supposed to be building each other up, strengthening each other. It's very easy for us to come to church and have our conversation be very superficial. Hey, how are you doing? What happened today? Those sorts of things. And some of that has to do with familiarity, and some of that has to do with we often just aren't comfortable coming up and saying, Hey, what thing were you struggling with this week? Hey, what did God encourage you with this week? We need to do that for each other. And I'll be honest, it's uncomfortable when you, when you do it. Um, I mean, even this week, I was just talking with somebody, and I said, so when did you trust Christ? And you think that would be an easy thing for Christians to talk about, but sometimes it seems like it's one of those things that sometimes we just don't get around to asking each other and talking about that and seeing how God has worked in our lives and, 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 and changed and transformed us through a variety of different circumstances. Do we have meaningful, helpful, edifying conversations? And then he sums it up in 31 and 32. He says of this, Put off everything of the old way and follow Christ's example. Put off hatred. Why do I say hatred? Look at verse 31. The end of it, it says, Along with all malice. What's malice? Malice is a desire to hurt someone. We hurt people in various ways, and a lot of them have to do with the way that we speak. Look what it says. Bitterness. What's bitterness? It's anger that we've put inside us, and so when we come and we see that person that we're bitter against, the only thing I can think is I'm angry at them, and everything they do is wrong, and I will never be happy with them again. That's bitterness. And it says in Hebrews, make sure there's not a root of bitterness springing up that defiles many. Why? Because bitterness doesn't just affect one person. It affects everyone that you're around. What's the next word on the list? Wrath. Now, wrath is appropriate when it comes from God, 
But there are also many times when it says the, the wrath of man does not accomplish God's purposes, right? Wrath, I think, is a desire to go after someone when they attack something that's precious to you. Two examples of this. The Jews in the synagogue in Luke 4.28, when Jesus was teaching and they didn't like what he was saying, they were filled with wrath. Or the Gentiles, the pagans in the temple in Acts 19.28, when Paul was preaching and somebody said, Hey, he doesn't like Diana. He doesn't like Artemis, your goddess. They're filled with wrath. So when something that we love that's precious to us is attacked, we feel wrath and we express it toward those around us. And Paul says to put that off, particularly when it's in a self-serving kind of way. What's anger? Anger, I think, in this context is, is the lashing out, the, the, the being frustrated and attacking other people. And we see this also in the context of clamor. Clamor is loud shouting, angrily shouting. And then the last word there is slander. What's slander? Slander is, I don't want that person to do well. So I'm going to go say something to someone that's not true, that puts them in a bad light, so that everybody else will think they're as awful as I believe them to be. That's slander. So look at how many of these have to do with our speech, or can flow out through our speech. And Paul says, set them all aside. This way of speaking it's like those dirty, sweaty, grubby clothes. Put them off. What are we supposed to put on? Be kind to one another. What does being kind look like? Kindness, I think, has a lot of similarities to grace. It's God showing us something we don't deserve. God is kind to us, and we're called to be kind to one another. It says, tender-hearted, warm affection, especially to family members. So, um, you know, the sort of feeling that you get when you're at a family reunion and you see people that you haven't seen in a long time and you reestablish that connection, that's something of the idea of what Paul's saying here. And then forgiving each other. Someone did wrong to me. Am I bitter against them? Do I shout angrily at them? Do I, am I filled with wrath against them? Or do I say, the instant that you turn from that sin, I am ready and willing to forgive you. Why? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I'm sure you remember the story that Jesus told. Here's this guy that owes a million dollars. The master says, it's forgiven. He goes out and finds somebody that owes him five bucks. He says, you pay me now or you're going to jail and your family's going to jail until you give me exactly what you owe me. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying here, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. All of these things are modeled after Jesus. Who's our model for all the things we're supposed to put off? Ultimately, it's Satan, right? He's the father of lies. He pushed Cain to hate his brother. All of these sorts of things. So he's the model for all the bad things. We don't follow his example. Who's the model for all of these good things? It's Christ. Christ loved his enemies. Christ spoke truth. Christ gave instead of taking. So do you know how to build up each other? 
I think this passage shows us at least some of the how, and it's certainly the why. So the question is, do you speak truth? Do you get angry sinfully? Do you steal? Do you speak in a rotten way? Or are you modeling your life after Christ? Again, we have to pray to God for his help to do this because we're not going to be able to accomplish it on our own. But are we able to do it? Yes. And we've got something far better than a YouTube video on how to stack bricks on top of each other. We have the Holy Spirit enabling us to do the things that he says he saved us to do. We were created in Christ Jesus that we would walk in good works. And so God's Spirit will give us the help that we need to do it. Do we know how to do it? If we look at the Bible, I think it shows us how. There's a ton of passages about here's how you behave toward each other in the church. And what does this accomplish? It's like God's building this building. And we are both the individual building blocks in which the Holy Spirit dwells and we're the structure in the middle of which the Holy Spirit dwells. And the whole thing is being built up so that God receives glory, we increase in good, and we pattern love to the world around us. So at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, do I want to be a part of this? Or do I want to go off over here and say, no, I want to lie, I want to steal, I want to hate, I want to speak whatever I want to say. God says, be a part of this. Stop being a part of this. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to build each other up. We all fail in many ways. It says in James that if we didn't sin in the way that we spoke, we would be perfect and able not to do the rest of the sins that we do. Lord, none of us are there yet, but by your help, hopefully we are uh, growing closer to you in these things. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to build each other up, particularly in the things that we say, so that the church would be strengthened, so that we would model your love to the people around us, to one another particularly, and that you would receive honor and glory in all these things. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.